Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, but as no one can say Valdemar Janusztak, my friends far and wide, they all call me Waldy. And I'm joined most decisively by a man who's been described as the Hercules of art history. This is a man who swats away doubters like unwanted flies in an episode of Aussie Gold Hunters. He walks tall, he says what needs to be said. He is, without a scintilla of doubt, the unbreakable rock upon which his own towering reputation is built. He is, of course, Bendor, Bendy, Grosvenor. Bendor, how goes it? Oh, very good indeed. And how do you do it, Valdivis? As I, I really have to remind you yet again that I am merely the lime mortar in your Sistine Chapel fresco. <laughs> Oh, I love to be uh, whatever goes on top of line and mortar in, in a fresco. Yes, thank you very much for that. Now, Ben, you're many things, but you're also, to my surprise, a big animal lover, as we'll see later in this podcast. Who would have thought it? Uh, and by the way, listeners, don't forget that every picture we talk about, all the art in this podcast, plus loads of other stuff, it's all available at zczfilms.com where there's a special podcast page you can look up and get back to after you're jogging, or perhaps when you finish cooking your dinner, all the things you do while you're listening to this podcast. It's all there at zczfilms.com. Now, Bendy, before we get down to your exciting animal adventures, um, there's, some, there's some good news I think I want to share. I, mean, I think it's really good news, really exciting. Uh, and it's about the British Museum. Now, uh, it's just been announced that the British Museum is going into partnership with the Nigerian government, no less, to help create a new museum of African art in Benin City in southern Nigeria. And accompanying it will be a huge archaeological dig in Benin City. Uh, it's absolutely certain to come up with fascinating stuff. So all this new information, a big new dig, a new museum even, designed by David Atje, no less. So it's all great news, isn't it, Bendy? Yes, very great news. And will we put it on our list of places to go when the world is back to normal? Do you think that'll be that'll be by the time the museum is finished, we can go there together and look at all the lovely new things that are going to be in it? But I, I did actually, I looked at the press release that you kindly sent me about the announcement of the, the museum, and I searched in vain for what I thought was going to be in it from the British Museum, which was some kind of acknowledgement or vague hint or something about uh, the fact that the British Museum might um, return some of the many artifacts that were taken from Benin in, um, back in 1897 by the British, but, but I couldn't see it. Could you? Well, it did say that the opening show was going to have um, uh, a collection of things in it taken or, or rather borrowed from various museums to which it had been dispersed. So um, I'm imagining that come the time, and we're looking forward here to whatever it is, what, five years or something they're projecting before the actual museum is built. But I am imagining a time when um, when there will be things lent, yes. I mean, I, I see, I'm getting the feeling that the British Museum has a bit of a mission at the moment to try and change its image. I mean, I, I did a terrible review. Well, it was a, it was a, it's a good review, but it, it didn't like the show at all, uh, which is the Arctic show at the British Museum, which seemed to me to be painting a rather an overly pretty picture of Arctic culture. And it's as if the British Museum is, is trying to sort of get in with its enemies and, and become a friend of other cultures and things. And um, it, it, let's face it, it does need 
to do a bit of that. And I suspect that this is all part of that desire to, to replan the British Museum a bit and to repicture it in front of its audience. Mm. And of course, I think museums, you know, a new museum is a great idea for Africa because museums change places, don't they? I mean, you, you put a museum somewhere, suddenly everybody turns up to look at it. Um, it. They are wonderful educational and promotional resources. So from that point of view, I think, I think that's really good news. Um, but of course, you know, when it comes to Benin, when it comes to the Benin bronzes in particular, I mean, there's lots of bad news as well, isn't there, Bendor? Uh, there is. I mean, it's it's amazing how long the bad news has been going on for. So let's just take it back to first principles. So uh, in 1897, the British army uh, launches um, what's called a punitive raid uh, on Benin City. Um, and uh, it, it raises and burns and destroys the whole city. And many, many people are killed um, because uh, we had the Maxim gun, as the saying goes, and they did not. Um, and we also destroyed the palace and we looted about 10,000 works of art from the city, which were then uh, taken back to Britain. And I always thought this was a sort of a spoils of war thing. But a new book, which has just come out, written by Professor Dan Hicks at the University of Oxford, called uh, The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution, makes it very clear that actually the taking of the artworks was all part of the colonial process. And it's a story that hasn't really been told fully. And um, for the podcast, Waldi, um, I interviewed him and uh, I began by asking him why so many artifacts were taken from Benin after the raid and for what purpose? So in the past, the old story was that the, 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 uh, the bronzes had to be taken and to be sold off, you know, officially in order to, to really, you know, defray the costs of the expedition. However, actually, I mean, in yeah, researching the book, I was really, you know, shocked to find that yeah, no such auction actually happened. There wasn't an official, you know, selling off. Instead of the 10,000 or so objects which, which were taken, about 300 of the famous, the wall plaques, which we see in the British Museum. You know, within weeks, these things are being displayed to tell a story of the victory. And they're deployed as part of an anthropological account of the of the so-called evolution of uh, culture. So the taking of these things is has this weird mix of an appreciation of this art, but also, you know, its sort of use in an idea of yeah, cultural superiority. In the back of your book, there's a league table of where many of these looted plaques have ended up. And the British Museum comes second with 192. And presumably you think these should all just now be returned directly to Benin. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's for each institution to, yeah. Uh, yeah, to move. I mean, of course, I mean, as we know, the well-rehearsed arguments that, that, there, that there is a legal you know, restraint on, you know, the nationals in the UK, you know, returning objects. Of course, that has been altered in other cases of you know restitution and you know one would think that the, that certainly if the will were there it'd be very easy to change the law but importantly the non-national and the university museums are not subject to any legal constraint so and so that's a part of the argument is we really need to widen out this conversation to see the non-state actors in the uk and elsewhere in europe an important argument of the of the book is we need to really um actually a look away from only the British Museum to decenter the British Museum in these conversations. They only hold about eight percent or nine percent 
of you know what we know was actually you know taken so there's more loot almost certainly in the uk from this incident outside the british museum in the regions than there is in the bm so it's a conversation for all of the trustees and indeed the audiences and the visitors of 150 or more museums around the world why do you think in Britain it's taken us so long to even begin to have this conversation about returning looted items? Well, of course, it hasn't in some ways. I mean, this this is a part of the, you know, the incredible challenge, I think, as we think about restitution, is that every time it comes up, it's almost like we're having the conversation for the first time. And we go, you know, various economists and others you know, go back to first principles, the ethical sense, they start, there's a lot of, you know, what aboutism that goes on and a lot of, you know, where will it endism that goes on. So we end up, you know, actually are talking before we know it about the Parthenon marbles, mm. about Easter Island, about this sort of, you know, universalist vision of restitution where the argument is, well, spoils of war have always been taken. Well, you know, very, you know, what goes back to Turkey from Rome, all these, all these sorts of things. Whereas in reality, I mean, the British Museum oversaw the first returns to the Ober as early as 1938. Two of the crowns of the Ober and also a coral robe was uh, returned. So it isn't that we've really, this is a new thing, but in 2002, the announcement, largely because of the pressure about the Parthenon marbles, in fact, there was this this announcement, this invention of the idea of the universal museums, uh, which was really you know, put out as the, the, you know aiming to kick into all the way into the long grass any sense of any restitution at all. The idea of the universal you know, museum that's that's an incredibly you know, recent idea that comes out of the very particular historical moments halfway between you know, 9/11 and the invasion of Iraq, as the book goes into. Um, it's a moment where there's a Blairite desire to almost instrumentalize a culture on a multicultural sort of model to say that, that these institutions can be sort of healing, but also largely to drive a destination tourist model. One of the things that always interests me about the British Museum's claim on the Benin bronzes uh, is that um, they won't even release the, the copyright of the photographs online. For everybody to use freely so the, the, on the one hand they say well we keep them here in london because everyone can see them and yet on the other hand they won't let everyone see them or use the images in a way that would be <laughs> match their um their ideals well that's right so i mean only 100 or so you know maybe not even 100 i mean the bm say 100 of the 900 or so objects which were from 1897 are on display. So that means that at least you know, 90% of them are just in the storerooms. Yeah. But it isn't only that institutions are holding on to onto images or copyright. You know, really they're holding on to knowledge. They're holding on to, they're not, you know, you, know, you can see some of these objects if you go to London, but not all of them. Because yes. a lot of museums do this, don't they? They have a sort of instinctive and desire to control, to control knowledge, to control access, to control images and archive. Do you think in the context of artworks like the Benin Bronzes that that need to control is a continuation of, of the colonial control from back in 1897? Yes, and I think that's the, the you know, really the sea, the, the, uh, the sea change which is, which is happening now. I think a lot of uh, directors of our national institutions, of other museums, haven't realised really, you know, what they're holding on to, you know, mm. what these things are. Yeah. 
it's a tiny minority of objects on display which we're talking about here so any argument that if you're having this conversation you're you're attacking the institution you'll empty the galleries yes, empty the is, is obviously here isn't it yeah it's obviously nonsense you know um so you know but actually what we what these things are these these sorts of you know poisonous almost like you know nuclear sort of waste which is left over from empire which can still importantly it can still hurt people mm, yeah. um i was very much struck you know just actually last week or earlier this week whenever it was with the ripper death and some of the online sort of conversation about how if you tell the story in a certain way if you write an obituary of of a serial killer actually further harm can yes. happen and i yes. think that i it sort of reminded me of some of the conversations we've been having to have in museums whereby it isn't a question of simply you know telling the story you know better of having to shuffle the labels around or the objects around the museum you know to reinterpret actually the physical presence of these displays is hurtful to some of our visitors and indeed is hurtful to some people that would never set foot in the Pitt Rivers or any other anthropology museum because you know they know these things are there so I want to imagine I mean I, I feel really yeah passionately that we have never needed something like a world culture museum more than we do today but that doesn't mean that we have to have objects which which were violently stolen where they're being asked for back and that's important. What an interesting interview well, that's quite a quite a story there, uh, Bendor. I took away a few things from that, but above all, this idea that the Benin bronzes were taken in quite such a violent and ghastly fashion. I mean, I think we all knew that they shouldn't really be at the British Museum, but who knew that it was achieved so grotesquely as this? Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I am ashamed to admit it because I used to be one of those people, perhaps we might talk about the past and the marvels in a moment, but I used to be one of those people many years ago, um, before I grew any common sense at all, that used to think that the past and the marvels should probably stay in the British Museum. The Benin bronzes were a slightly more obvious example of things that had a very valid claim to go back. But it's, it, it's shaming in a way, I now think, that I, I even thought there was a debate because they should so obviously be sent back and i think they should be sent back very soon and with as little um sort of legal delays as possible because as dan very eloquently points out in the interview and in his book um the mere fact that we're still holding on to these things and debating whether they're ours or someone else's is actually an extension of the violent act that happened all those decades ago so so horribly and um it's an injustice that we shouldn't be perpetuating at all well, look, I basically agree with you, um, but I'm going to I'm going to act a devil's advocate here because I've seen things that, that at least make me not wish to rush to those kinds of conclusions. I mean, I, I've actually filmed quite a lot in uh, in Africa and, and I've, I certainly have filmed in Nigeria. And one of the things that really sticks out in my mind was the, the time when I was doing a series for uh, Channel 4 called The Sculpture Diaries. And, and we went off to film what I think are some of the greatest sculptures of all, let alone in terms of African art, and that's the Ife heads, which are these beautiful heads, bronzes. They have a few in the British Museum, which sort of appeared in, in the 19th century. And, and then later on in the, in the 1920s, they were rediscovered. And people, people started saying things like, these are so good 
um, that the Greeks must have made them. There must have been a lost colony of Greeks who found their way to Nigeria and made these <laughs> things, you know. Um, but, but of course not. They were, they're actually made by, by Ife craftsmen on the fringes of, of the Benin culture. They're absolutely mm. astonishing things. I mm. love them. They are amongst my favourite sculptures of all. So off we went to the Ife Museum, um, where there was supposed to be the biggest collection of them. And um, there was nothing there. Bendor, you know, we got there filming. You can see it in the film. We got there and there were, what, 50 empty plinths and one sculpture. Um, the rest had either been stolen or lost or had somehow turned up back in Lagos and were probably being sold to somebody. Now, that's an extreme example, but um, it is, I think, fair to the British Museum to say that in many, many instances, things that it has had uh, guardianship of um, have been preserved from situations where they may have been lost in the past. Um, you know, I'm trying to phrase this as delicately as I can, but I mean, I think it is a truth that um, by and large, the British Museum has managed to keep together things and keep them in, in, in the world's um, eyeline that may otherwise have rotted or been damaged. Because not everywhere has a museum culture that started up as early as our museum culture. You know, there are other societies where museum cultures are, are, are happening a bit later. So from that point of view, you know, let's, let's not just keep beating ourselves up about the past. I mean, this <laughs> is, it, it is what it is. We have this wonderful stuff. For me, a worse crime is that not all of it's on show. You know, as, as, as Dan said again in the interview, now you go to these museums around Britain and, and, and they've got this stuff in the basement, but they never show it. That, to me, that is disgraceful, you know, yes. and, that, and that is a crime that can easily be sorted. And that's presumably one of the things that will happen with the new museum in Benin City, you know, that exciting new museum. Yes, yes. I suppose if, if I was to come back at you on the, the, the British Museum keeps things safe, uh, line, I would say that, yes, it's difficult for uh, countries in places like Africa to have had a museum culture, since um, we, we took away most of what they would have used to build that culture in the first place. So there's a certain, um, you know, there's a cart before the horse argument here. And I think what this is, is most revealing about this British sense of um, this extreme reluctance to, to stop being so grippy about everything, even though it's mostly in the vaults, um, is the example of the Parthenon Marbles, where uh, back in Athens, they have the most fantastic museum uh, ready to go right beside the Parthenon, where, where there is no doubt these things would be shown to the best of, of uh, best advantage. And yet we still can't bring ourselves to do it. So I really hope the attitude changes soon. Well, I have a story about that as well, because I, I remember having a conversation with the previous director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor, great director, in my opinion. Mm. And this was a few years ago now, um, when the museum in Athens had been already sort of touted, but it wasn't finished. And he told me that that plans were nearly finalised to lend some of the Elgin marbles to the museum for that opening. And that um, the museum had worked out a deal with the with the Greeks and the Greek cultural ministry to lend this stuff for a given time, five, six years, whatever it was, and that they would have a kind of joint ownership and they would swap and share, which, you know, is, is a wonderful route ahead. Mm -hmm. And then just at the last minute, you know, there was a, another Greek election. The previous um, government got chucked out. New government came in, nationalistic government. Um, and it, and, and it, it demanded that the all the Elgin marbles be returned and that the deal was broken and dropped. So there have been efforts afoot, you know, uh, diplomatic efforts afoot. And if you get the right people in the right places, um, you know, things are always possible. But um, of course, of course, these are sensitive issues. And, and, and no one for one second will say that um, these are easy issues to sort out. But people have been trying. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, we must try harder, um, is my conclusion. <laughs> yes. Well, that sounds like what's happening. And with the Benin bronzes and the new museum and this commitment, I think, to actually taking stuff from the British Museum and showing it there, which I think is part of the plans. Hopefully, um, we'll get back to some, to some sort of reasonable behaviour by Britain's museums. And above all, you know, I, this just this ridiculous thing that they hang on to so much stuff and don't, and don't let any of it go when they don't need it and they don't show it. I'll tell you what I did think was a very good point that Dan made as well. And that's the point about, you know, he mentions the Yorkshire Ripper of all things, where he says that however many years after the event, the existence of these things can still be painful for the descendants and ancestors. And that, of course, is the great truth here, is that every time someone from Africa looks at the Benin bronzes and considers this fantastic kingdom they had, this glorious art history they had, which is so different from the way African art is usually painted, every time they look at that in the British Museum, it is a knife through the heart, isn't it, in terms yeah. of in terms of what happened in the past. It's, I mean, I'm not going to argue against that. Of course it is. It's, it's like turning up at Stonehenge uh, now and finding only one stone because uh, all the rest have been carted off somewhere else. Uh, that That is the equivalent, isn't it? It is. Well, look, I said, oh God, I've, I've played devil advocate. I'm basically on your side, of course I am. Um, <laughs> and I'm just trying to be hopeful about it because it's one of those situations, unless you're a bit hopeful, uh, everybody just goes on and on about it and nothing ever happens. And I'm, I'm assuming it will. We need a sense of outrage. Uh, nothing makes things happen like a sense of outrage these days. So I think it's it's beholden on us, well, because because no one else does outrage like you and me uh, to keep being outraged. <laughs> You've been better outraged this time <laughs> than I have. Um, but there's certainly a lot to play for. I mean, it's the soul of the British Museum, a whole lot of other stuff, uh, Britain's whole colonial past, no less. It's a it's a big, 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 big deal. Um, but Bendy. Uh, I think I have to admit that the next part of the podcast that we're coming on to, I think there's less to play for. Um, I mean, basically, basically, there's nothing at all to play for. It's totally, totally inconsequential. But when did that ever stop the Waldy and Bendy Awards? The Waldy and Bendy Awards. Yes, folks, the Wendy's are back. The most prestigious awards on this podcast. A few people would love to win one, but many, many, many more couldn't give a monkey's, or in this case, a donkey's. Let me explain. So the other day I was talking to Bendy, and he said to me, Oops, oh, gotta go now. I have to feed the donkey. Donkey, I said. What donkey? Bendy. You're a TV giant, not a farmer. What are you doing with a donkey? So, Bender, what are you doing with a donkey? Oh, donkey's plural, Wilder. We have two. Casper uh, and Jose, um, who are, we are uh, looking after them for the local donkey sanctuary because we have a, a, little, a little field or two up here in the Scottish borders. Very lucky. And um, we've decided to look after the donkeys. And they are wonderful. My favourite animal. They are always so good-natured and so pleased to see you and so soft and gentle. I like to nestle my head in their fur, and they, and they always make me feel better. Oh, do you know, I can see you nestling your face <laughs> in the fur of a donkey. What a cheery thought that is. Anyway, to celebrate this momentous image, yes, we've, we've, we've decided to do a, a Waldy and Bendy Award for the five best representations of donkeys in art. And of course, we're spoiled for choice. I mean, there are millions of great donkeys in art. But I, I, we've been very democratic about this. Um, and basically, I decided on the five ones that I liked. Um, and I forced them upon you, basically, Bendor. 
but by one of those mysteries of the ether that uh, always astound me. My top five and, and, and your top five have actually ended up being exactly the same. You put them in the same order as I did, which I think is remarkable. So either great minds think alike, uh, or when it comes to donkeys, everybody gets befuddled, one or, one or the other. Uh, but anyway, we've got five superb representations of donkeys in art. Um, at number five, I present to you, Bendor, uh, Picasso's 1923 picture uh, of his son, Paolo, riding a donkey on a beach. What do you think of that? Well, uh, now you and I, Waldo, we've fallen out about <laughs> Picasso painting children in the past. Uh, you think he's a very good painter of children. I'm not so persuaded. Um, and frankly, I'm not that persuaded that he's any good at painting donkeys either. So that's why he's definitely <laughs> in my fifth place. Uh, the donkey here uh, is looking a little bit bloated. I think it's been fed too much roughage. Um, I don't think it's a very happy looking donkey. And I, that's why I put him in fifth place. <laughs> I think you've got the settings wrong on your your framing or formats wrong on your on your picture source there. He's not a bloated donkey. He's a sweet little donkey and a sweet little boy riding him. I mean, this is Picasso's first son, Paolo. Um, and I mean, apart from the picture itself, which I think is very charming, and everybody can see it on ZCZFilms.com on the podcast page. So it's a little boy riding this donkey on the beach. But what's what's tragic is that Paolo himself had this terrible life. I mean, he went on, he, he became an alcoholic. Um, he's one of those typical cases of, you know, the, the, the offspring of a great man who just never made it and fell apart, really. So he became a drunkard. He had a bad marriage. I mean, his, his son, Pablito, you know, died awfully. He committed suicide, drank a bottle of bleach. And Paolo himself basically was only interested in one thing, it seems, and that was cars. So Picasso, in this massive insult, made him his chauffeur. So Paolo became Picasso's chauffeur, would drive him around the south of France. He was a, he was a tragic figure. But that's all in the future, you see. What, what, that's not here yet. This is, this is still Picasso as an optimist. He's still married to his first wife. He still loves his kids. And I think he's still a delightful painter of children. Um, and there's something so soft and sentimental and lovely about this. You know, I agree with you, it should be number five out of this great list we've got. I do think it's a charming image. Hmm. Okay. What was number four? I can't remember now. Number four, how can you not remember number four? Number four was Goya. Oh, uh, yes. Goya, Goya, Goya made this superb series of um, etchings and aquatints called the Caprichos, the Caprices. And donkeys feature quite a lot in them. There's a whole section of about five Caprichos in a row where the donkeys stand in really for the aristocracy and the privileged classes of Spain. So the, the one I've chosen is it shows a donkey doctor leaning over the bed of, uh, of, of an ill person. And, and it's, it's entitled, like all the Caprichos, it's got a little motto underneath. It says, uh, de que mal morira? What's he going to die from? And so obviously the, the point is that the donkey doctor is, is so bad that the patient's sure to die. Fabulous image, don't you think, Bendor? It's a fabulous image, and the, and the patient does look very near death. <laughs> it's in fourth place because obviously I feel so attached to donkeys in all forms i feel as if a guy is being a little bit unkind uh in presenting the doctor as a donkey because it's, it's clearly intended to mock isn't it i mean if i've got my goy history right at about this time he himself had been diagnosed with a mystery illness which was later to afflict him very severely and he'd obviously uh, had experience of various doctors and didn't think very highly of them um, and that is that is how he's decided to represent the doctor here, because he's saying, is the patient more likely to die from what he's actually ill of or from the inept 
and ignorant doctors. So I, I think it's a, a bit harsh for, for Goya to dress the, the doctor as a donkey. I think he should have chosen another animal. Yeah, but the trouble is that there's a whole bunch of these donkeys in, in the Caprichos, and they, they represent different terrible things in humanity. I mean, they're all privileged. There's another one um, which just shows um, a donkey looking at a book full of other donkeys, and it's actually taking the mickey out of the aristocracy and their search for roots. You know how some aristocrats keep going on about their ancestors all the time? And all yeah, they... you're always going on about the, you know, the great Waldemar <laughs> I, emperor of uh, Poland. <laughs> and, unfortunately, you've never mentioned the Grosvenor family in the past, so you know, we, we've managed to avoid this, haven't we? But others uh, of, a lower, of a lower status than ourselves, uh, Bendor, go on and on about their ancestors. So there's, there's another print in the Capriccio series of a donkey ancestor, as it were, looking through the ancestral books. Um, and that, that one's entitled Hasta su abuelo, which I think is, and, and so was its grandfather. So it's like the, the donkey is a donkey, and so was its grandfather a donkey. They're all donkeys, but they are harsh. It, it's not, look, Spain is not a nation renowned for loving animals, is it? So it treats its donkeys harshly, and Goya treats donkeys harshly. But magnificent art, wouldn't you agree? I would. Uh, do you know, uh, the last time I was in holiday in Spain, I turned on the telly, and do you know who was staring at me? You! Uh -huh. yeah, you were, you're on Spanish TV, and they had um, dubbed you into Spanish, and having heard your Spanish accent, I can understand why they dubbed you into Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> you beast. Oh, wow, that's, 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 that's harsh. But you were staying in Spain for number three, and perhaps this might lift you a little bit. Um, it's a painting by Daumier, done in the 1850s, uh, and it's actually one of a series of paintings he did illustrating the great Cervantes novels of, of Don Quixote. And the Don Quixote novels, I mean, they're a bit like you and me, Bendy. Um, Don Quixote is this deluded aristocrat who rides around the world tilting at windmills, whereas uh, his, his sidekick, poor old Sancho Waldi Panza, rides around on a donkey and, and delivers moments of common sense, right? That's the relationship, right? So it's a sort of mirror image. And Domi captures it beautifully, I think, in, in a series of paintings. But the one I like most is good because you can really see the donkey and it's sort of silhouetted on the top of a hill and, and, and Don Quixote is rushing off on his horse to tilt at more windmills or whatever he's doing. But it's a kind of fabulous image, isn't it? It's a lovely painting and it's all the better for being a preparatory study for a, a version, which I think is an American in private collection. I, I love sketches and studies and this is, this is a marvellous one. Um, I have to pull you up, I'm afraid, Wilde, <laughs> uh, because did you know that the, this is not a donkey? If you had read your Cervantes, <laughs> you would know that it's a mule. And do you know what a mule is? I, of course I know what a mule is. It's a mix between a donkey and a horse. Ah, yes, but specifically, a mule is what happens if you cross a male donkey, uh, technically a jack, and a female horse a mare. Uh, do you know what the opposite is? No. If no, you breed a female donkey and a male uh, horse. It's, you're, you're bringing out all this Scottish donkey knowledge on me. But it's now. very important people get I'm at a disadvantage. You've made a terrible no. blunder, and I, I think no, you should know for the future. No, so but everybody, everybody thinks Sancho Panza rides a donkey. No, Not no, just no, me. So. It's, it's even got a name, Dapple. Dapple the donkey. That's what it's called, Dapple the donkey from Don Quixote. Dapple the mule. Take it up with the world of literature, not with me. But anyway, what is the name of a female mule? A hinny. A female donkey and a male horse that produces something called a hinny. A hinny. Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. I stand with Sancho Panza on this. You know, he was famous for saying these things, wasn't he? The, the whole relationship in, in, the, in the book is like my relationship with you. So you go on these flights of ridiculous f fantasy and say s silly things. And I say earthy, real things, right? 
That's, that's how it goes. And the earthy real things, there's a Spanish word for it. Did you know that they're called Sanchismos after Sancho Panza? Sanchismos. Really? Yeah. Those are earthy real things. Like, you know, life is something you only live once or that sort of stuff. They're really solid. Yes. Yes. So, so anyway, Zomier was obsessed with Don Quixote. Lots of artists have done it. Picasso did Don Quixote as well. Um, and so the debatable donkey mule figure in in the paintings um was always prominent really so it, it pops up a lot in art i mean i seem to remember from my reading of don Quixote, which admittedly was a long time ago that uh, sancho panza was was rather taciturn i'm not sure you could apply that to yourself uh yes i mean taciturn <laughs> definitely but um i can be taciturn should, should the need arise and by the way you know what panza means this is even more this is this will this will get you straight to me. Do you know what panza means in Spanish? Uh, fond of sausages. Very close. Belly. Oh, really? Belly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you, you see, you, you have the advantage over our listeners. You can actually see what the pandemic has done to me. How I've turned from um, from a bendor shape into a circle, basically. But yes, it means belly. But they're wonderful, these these great domier. They're so different from anything anybody else was doing at the time. Sort of brave. You know, he was a mm. cartoonist as well. So yeah. he, he was such a brave painter. He didn't really care about illusion. It was just these swirling, fast, quick brushstrokes, perfectly suited for, I think, for, for illustrating Don Quixote. But we better move on. Mm. We better move on. We've only got to number three. Number two in the great donkeys in art. I took a little bit carefully to see it. But it's in the background to, I think, my favourite painting by Votto, which is the painting that used to be called Gilles. I still call it Gilles, but they now call it Piero. But it's the same painting. It's a sort of um, self-portraity picture of a figure, sadly, sort of sad clown standing in white at the front of the picture with all these characters of the Commedia dell'arte behind, including a guy on a donkey, Bendor. Oh, what a wonderful painting this is. And it's, um, you don't often get the idea from the photos online, but it's huge, isn't it? I think it's the biggest painting that Watto ever made. And some say it might have been created as a sign, as like a, like a restaurant or a pub sign. Um, but uh, Piero, the, the famous clown character, he was, he was created by a troupe of what we, we would call here players, Italian players, uh, in Paris in the late 17th century, the Comédie Italienne. And Piero was, was a rather sort of naive character, wasn't he? Often the butt of jokes uh, taken advantage of, a rather trusting character. And what's interesting about Watto's depiction of him here is that the face is, is sort of got a rather uh, Mona Lisa uh, enigmaticness about it, hasn't it? Uh, we're not really sure if this Piero is enjoying his life as a clown or whether he's actually rather sad. Um, and I think that the answer to this conundrum is actually revealed by the donkey in that the donkey, like the Piero, is, is the only character in the painting looking directly at us. And he's being ridden by someone who's rather large. And the donkey is being pulled along because he obviously doesn't want to carry this person. Um, and I think that is a reflection of the character of Piero. Uh, the donkey is Piero, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He is being taken advantage of, a beast of burden, uh, and our sympathy is very much with him. Mm. What an interesting observation. You know, I, I, I think you might even be a bit right there. Um, you know, the donkey at the back is being ridden by, I think it's a stock character from the Commedia dell'arte called the Doctor. But you're quite right, they're sort of yanking him across the stage or yanking him onto the stage, aren't they? And there's no doubt at all that the Piero character himself, who is, of course, often said to be a Votto self-portrait, not mm. necessarily literally, but in terms of its spirit, right. this rather downcast clown standing there, in a way, sort of forced onto the stage, isn't he? I mean, he's just, he doesn't really want to be there, does he? And yes. um, it's it's like 
being told that you have to go on stage when you're at school and you nervously go up there and all the eyes are on you. So it's a poignant, lovely picture. But you're quite right. I mean, the I think the background, which I've tended to underestimate, must have a role in the in the storyline that we're being presented with here. Uh, and you're also quite right that the pulling of the donkey does seem to be about the yanking someone in a direction they don't want to go in. I think that's a lovely observation, Bendor. Well, I think I should write this up. This, this could be the Grosvenor thesis that's going to solve all the, the Watto mystery. And mm. it's all it all comes down to the donkeys. That's why we're doing this. The donkeys, this the donkeys. unheralded in art history. They are unheralded, and it's a fabulous painting, but um, it's not even number one, imagine. Even this great uh, Votto isn't number one, because at number one in the great parade of donkeys, the donkey fest that we've got here, is a picture by Orazio Gentileschi, who, of course, is the father of Artemisia Gentileschi, who we'll be talking about a lot on this podcast already. And it's, uh, it's the rest on the flight into Egypt. So it's a big biblical topic covered by loads and loads of artists um mary joseph and jesus have to flee from bethlehem to egypt because herod's killing all the babies um and on the way they have to stop somewhere and sleep and that's the moment that orazio's painted and but perhaps it gives a little bit more detail about it uh, bendor well uh, joseph is, is is absolutely out for the count uh, mary um is feeding jesus uh, and in the background, behind a wall, we see uh, a donkey's head. And it, as it happens, the donkey here looks very much like our Casper. And I'll have to send you a photo of our Casper. We'll put him on the zczfilms.com website so you can make the comparison yourself. Excellent. But what's interesting to me is that uh, uh, Gentileschi painted this uh, subject a number of times. And I, we think that the prime version is in the Louvre. Uh, and that has no donkey. And the version we're talking about today is in Birmingham museums, and there is the donkey. And, and it's considered to be the second or, or perhaps even the third version. And what I think is so interesting about the inclusion of the donkey is that it, it, it has a very important effect on the narrative, doesn't it? Because without the donkey, uh, they're just having a rest, but the donkey means they're on a journey. So it, it's absolutely essential to, to the story of the rest of the flight of Egypt. Um, of course, in the Bible, the donkey isn't mentioned at all, but, but artists fasten on it as a, as a means of conveying the journey. And also because the Holy Family is of humble status, they certainly can't afford a horse. And so a donkey is chosen. And I think what a fantastic reflection uh, of, of the character and good nature of a donkey that mm -hmm. it, it is chosen mm -hmm. to play this crucial role in biblical pictures like this. I mean, it couldn't be more crucial, could it? That's the thing about this picture. The donkey is the star, really. It is right in the middle. I mean, if you did that thing which our historians love, you know, where they, they work out the composition of the picture, and they, inevitably it's a triangle, isn't it? Um, with a sort of apex um, roughly where the donkey's head is. So the donkey is right at the apex of this triangle of the composition, and it is looking away from the scene. So you've got this absolutely conked out Joseph, who looks like he's drunk and has fallen into a kind of coma on his on his on his sack of stuff um and mary and jesus locked in this sort of feeding embrace and the donkey's looking out to the future the horizon into the distance and it's the donkey as you said that gives the thing a sense of journey the sense of they're going somewhere that really is the star of the picture and it's big it's a big old donkey in terms of scale that head i mean imagine if that's the head imagine how big the body is behind the wall you know that, that it's standing in front of so it's absolutely the star of the painting and I'm very pleased it's our number one choice. And we both agreed on it. We when clearly we should talk about donkeys more often because we don't we don't argue about donkeys in art. 
Well, we'll move on to all the other animals you've got at the uh, Bendor Grosvenor Zoo for uh, <laughs> displaced animals in Scotland. Uh, but enough of that. Let's quick celebration. Da 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 da. The winner of the Wendy for the best donkey in art is the donkey in Horatio Gentileschi's Rest on the Flight into Egypt. We've already let our imaginations go a bit here, Bendy, uh, but we're going to let them go even further now because we've come to that bit of the podcast where we imagine the wonderful things that we could have on our walls if we could have absolutely anything we wanted during our period of isolation on the wall yes it's on the wall bendy fun time where we get to choose stuff and decide that we want things on our walls that nobody else wants or that everybody else wants i don't know what what have you gone for this week I've gone for The Fall of Icarus by Peter Bruegel the Elder, which belongs to the Royal Museum of Fine Arts of Belgium in Brussels. It's a wonderful image, and the scene shows a horse and a farmer ploughing a small field um, beside the sea, and the sea stretches off into the distance, and we see various little ships in the sea, and, and beyond it, a setting sun which, which lights the whole painting with a, a warm evening light, and there's a, a city and a port in the background. And uh, at first glance, you will struggle to find the Icarus, but he's there, bottom right, all you can see of him having fallen into the sea, a little pair of spindly legs sticking up from a splash, and a hand uh, reaching out, uh, a final sort of desperate attempt to, to not drown. And we might think that's rather strange, but, but back in the 16th century, uh, this painting was made about 1560s, viewers would have expected an element of, of where's Wally about these things. And if you were to look at similar pictures by Bruegel and his family, um, they, they often consign what you might think is the main narrative to a sort of rather obscure part of, of the canvas. And at the time, that was deliberate because they were starting to focus on, on other details or still life's depictions of landscape. Um, and animals, and the, the religious narrative sort of got slightly sidelined off to the back. But of course there is another reason for this sort of apparent uh, ignoring of Icarus, and that's perhaps the most intriguing thing about the picture, is that the, the farmer uh, and the shepherd in the picture and the fisherman down by the sea are uh, oblivious to uh, Icarus falling into the sea. Um, in classical tellings of the legend of Icarus, people like Ovid, uh, we hear of onlookers sort of staring up in amazement at these these people flying around in the sky and then Icarus falling into the sea. But, but in this picture, uh, it's very different. Uh, they ignore it because uh, life just goes on. Um, and you're probably braced for this, Wildy, but um, instead of me trying to explain or analyse anything more about the picture, I'm actually going to, to stop um, waffling on and I'm going to read uh, one of the best and most concise pieces of art historical analysis uh, ever written. Um, I mean, of course, the famous poem uh, by W.H. Auden, uh, which is titled Musée de Beaux-Arts and describes this painting. Are you ready for that? You're going to read a poem? Well, you've read a, po you've read a poem in An On The Wall, and I thought I would read a poem too. Well, okay, here we go, everybody. It's a poem, and here's Bendor. <laughs> Stand by. This is Musée de Beaux-Arts by W.H. Auden. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters, how well they understood its human position, how it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along, how when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for the miraculous birth, there must always be children who did not specially want it to happen, skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom 
must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The ploughman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to, and sailed calmly on. It's a great poem. I, yes, I, I, I know it, actually. Um, yeah, I think Auden was in Brussels, wasn't he, at the, just before the, the Second World War broke out. Um, and um, as I recall, he was going around the museum looking at Rubens or something and, 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 and trying to work out why so much attention in these pictures seemed to be lavished on um, the subsidiary cast, you know, um, in this case, the ploughman, the, the, the shepherd and the fisherman, rather than the big story here, which is Icarus. Icarus is falling out the sky, you know, every myth that had been written about. So it's a, it's a lovely idea. But see, one thing though, Bendel, I thought this painting was no longer thought to be by Bruegel. Hadn't there been a big discussion about it and it would be relegated to, to, to studio assistant or something? Yes, I mean, for a long time it was, was hailed as one of Bruegel the Elder's most celebrated works. And you're right, the attribution has been doubted. I think the museum officially sort of says Bruegel question mark. Um, and now I wouldn't want to go to the stake on it, but I sort of, I, I just wanted to call it Bruegel here because I, I think I still believe in it. Mm. And it's it's partly, I think, so the attribution was questioned because some of the details weren't deemed to be good enough by him. But when you really look at the picture, you see that actually this is a painting that has suffered quite considerably over time. And what we see uh, today is is in large areas repaint by later restorers. But mm. I think I think there's still enough of it which we could we could still say, um, this might yet be by Bruegel the Elder himself. Mm. And one thing I do know is that, because there's another version of it that I, that I think I've seen myself, and in that, I mean, you know, Daedalus is, is visible in the sky, because of course Icarus and Daedalus both flew flew off, but it was Icarus who went too near the sun, so he's the one that, you know, the sun melted his wings and so he fell into the waters, but Daedalus carried on flying. And in the other version of this, Daedalus is still in the sky, so the, the shepherd here is looking up into the sky, in this version where you don't see Daedalus, he's just looking into the sky. But in the other version, you see he's looking at Daedalus. So he has noticed the big event. He hasn't actually completely ignored it. But it, it reminds me of that much later telling phrase uh, by, by Hannah Arendt, you know, about the what she called the banality of evil, how sort of dark things happen, but they don't necessarily feel dark when they're happening. You know, the, these, these sort of tragedies and things have a way of occurring in ways that some of us just don't notice you know they're going on but we don't really know about it I mean, it's a big old master point isn't it uh, yes but a very lovely painting i i tend to agree with you that it i mean it feels more broigly than not to me i must say mm, good uh, well it's something we shall when we look at it together in our gallery we shall examine it closely and come to a conclusive definitive version on the attribution which will have to be accepted henceforth by everybody that's absolutely right. The Waldy and Bendy truth. Well, speaking of which, so, so I've gone for something much, 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 much uh, bigger. Um, and it's not so much on the wall as in the garden, because uh, it's a building, which I do want to erect in my garden. But before I tell you what it is, Bendy, what do you think it is? I've, I've sent you the photo, but I haven't told you what it is, right? Describe it to me and tell me what you think it is. 
Well, um, when I first opened it up, I just thought it looks like a huge phallus. Um, and uh, because I always love the way you say penis, Valdi, I'm hoping it's going to be something like that. But it, on, on closer inspection, is it, is it a water tower or something? But where, where do you think? Where, where might this water tower be? Uh, it looks American. Looks American. Well, what, rough date? Give me a date. Um, one of those kind of late Victorian, early 20th century things. Circa 1900. Circa 1900. Okay. So you say it's possibly American, possibly a water tower, circa 1900. What it actually is, is a 10th century mausoleum in Iran. Um, and it's the mausoleum of Abdul Hassan Qabus ibn Fushimgir. Um, and I've been there. It is one of the most extraordinary bits of architecture I or anyone else can ever have seen. It's made of brick. So long before the Battle of Hastings uh, in Iran, someone was building this. It's over 200 feet tall. It is in incredibly modernist in its simplicity. It's just seemingly a brick tower with these sharp flanges that in the, in the hot sun of, um, of Iran, they really stand out and this little pointy top. And it comes out of nowhere. I mean, you're, you're driving through North Iran and suddenly there's this massive great thing, 200 feet tall, brick, pure, clean, rising up above you. So that's amazing, absolutely amazing, thrilling. But then you go inside and you find out the storyline about it, right? So what it is, it's a mausoleum. And what Abdul Hassan Kabus ibn Voshingir wanted to do for himself is bury himself in a rock crystal coffin which hung from the middle of the tower, from the roof, down through these 200 feet and would hang just above the ground in the mausoleum. So when you went in, you'd be confronted, well, you were confronted because the, the, you know, it's not there anymore, but it was there at some point, by a crystal coffin with Abdul Hassan Kabus Ibn Voshimgir in the middle, hanging, suspended from the roof. I mean, isn't that amazing? Isn't that just the most miraculous thing? Doesn't that really challenge all our ideas about European history and, and how easy it is to forget what was going on outside Europe? And you know, if you, if you take this back to that original point about the British Museum and other cultures, I mean, what an astonishing thing. It could be a 1950s water tower, but it's not. It's a beautiful mausoleum of the 10th century. It's, um, it's very eccentric, but I'm slightly concerned as to why you want it in your garden and why you've been thinking about it. Are you, are you having morbid thoughts, Valdi? Do, do you want to have yourself encased in a, a crystal coffin so we'll all queue up to see you like Lenin's tomb? Oh, God, you've got a way of just getting it right. I, mean, I would love that. I would love to have a crystal coffin. Um, but no, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't put it up because I'm going to die tomorrow, although God knows you know, what, what could happen, especially working with a guy like you. But uh, it's there because, because it fills me with excitement. I want to be excited. And to me, this is exciting architecture and it's surprising architecture as well and i'm hoping that the new benin museum in benin city that david atjay comes up with will have this same wonderful sense of of an unexpected building so now i see it as something full of hope and excitement i love it mm, good and on that very optimistic note, Bendor, since you've been waffling away, God knows you've talked a lot, and I've managed to, to, to get the odd word in edgeways. <laughs> on that exciting note, um, that's the end of it. That's the end of the podcast. So um, on all these topics from me and the donkey, it's goodbye and... And cheerio from me.
Woldy and Bendy.